I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, mass evacuations. Tens of thousands of Palestinians struggle to flee southern Gaza as Israeli forces pursue Hamas with maximum force. Act of terrorism. A deadly bombing hits a Catholic mass in the Philippines on the first Sunday of Advent. We have the latest. Defending the faith. A Catholic school threatened by state law fights for religious freedom. We have analysis and a pilgrimage of peace. Not even a war can stop the faithful from experiencing Christmas from the Holy Land. We'll explain these stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. John of Damascus. Our top story tonight, Israel widens its ground offensive, stepping up attacks across the Gaza Strip. The Israel Defense Forces claim to have hit about 200 targets in Gaza. A loud explosions rock the town of Khan Yunus, now in the center of the fighting. Dozens of injured were rushed to Nasser Hospital, but the facility is already overcrowded and its resources are dwindling. Meanwhile, the IDF has given fresh evacuation orders in Gaza. A U.N. agency said today that 1.9 million people have been displaced. That is more than 80 percent of Gaza's population. And now aid groups are warning that people are running out of places to flee. Akram Al-Satari is a Gaza-based journalist, and he joins us now. Akram, I understand you're in Khan Yunus. What's the situation there? The situation where I am now in South Gaza is extremely catastrophic. Very large number of people, tens of thousands of families, grabbing whatever they can, their belongings, their mattresses, their blankets, their gallons of water, their medications, and trying to head to the very south of the Gaza Strip. They received drop, air-dropped leaflets, and they're asked, according to them, to leave to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Those leaflets are very complicated, and they are explaining where the people of Gaza should move. They're drawing, explaining through drawings and blocks, giving, assigning a number to each block, and asking people of Gaza to move. Number one, people of Gaza don't have access to internet. Most of them don't have access to internet. Secondly, they have great problems and challenges related to transportations and related to the freedom of movement, given the non-stop bombardment ever since the ceasefire came to an end. Gazans who received those leaflets and Gazans who received those leaflets were trying to move to the south and the other Gazans were receiving phone calls. In those phone calls, there is a recorded message saying that it is the Israeli army and people of Gaza should be heading to the south of Gaza or Al-Mawasi area in the very east of Khan Yunus. And people are now, they have been ever since this key development took place, till to this particular moment have been trying to move and have been trying in Rafah area to erect tents and to make some small shelters with whatever they can get for the sake of just staying even on the two sides of the roads. Now, officially, 1.8 million Gazans are considered IDPs or potential IDPs. With the panic that is widespread because of the 
distribution of those airdrop leaflets and phone calls and all of those type of communications, Gazans are now moving to the south and most of them are now staying in the south fearing the worst because they have seen ongoing bombardment and they have seen ongoing devastation and they are not sure whether they will be safe in the south because they have seen several different occasions where people who were moving to the south ended up being bombarded and killed in the south. Akram, before I let you go, talk to us about the humanitarian situation. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is extremely catastrophic in the meantime. Those are the words of the head of the submission of the ICRC. They say, and so she says, that the situation in Gaza is unbearable and that the authorities should be allowing unhindered flow of the assistance to the people of Gaza Strip. Now food becomes a, an issue of death or life. Now the water is a challenge for the people of Gaza. With the disruption of many of the desalination units, with many of the water treatment plants all over the Gaza Strip, people in Gaza are facing some serious public health issues. And also the number of people who are displaced now is increasing. 1.8 million, like I said. And with those 1.8 million comes a great deal of a challenge, a great deal of need, a great deal of vulnerability, and a great deal of a crisis of protection and access as well. So Gazans now are living a very bad and ever worsening uh, humanitarian situation that is likely to worsen by the ongoing bombardment that you can hear in the background that was non-stop ever since the ceasefire came to an end. Akram Al-Satari from Khan Yunus in Gaza. Thank you so much. While discussing the hostages still being held, the Biden administration says it's trying to find a way forward. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says that he has been meeting with family members of American hostages held by Hamas, and he described the suffering the families are enduring. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, as Israel goes after Hamas, determined to destroy it once and for all, hopes for another temporary truce have faded, and dozens of hostages, Americans among them, remain in captivity. The U.S. continues pledging unwavering support to Israel, making that clear national security advisor Jake Sullivan. They have every right to go after the Hamas terrorists who committed this brutal massacre on October 7th and who continue to fire rockets just in the last hours at civilian areas in Israel. As for the hostages still being held, Americans among them, Hamas said talks are releasing more of the hostages brutally seized on October 7th must be tied to a permanent ceasefire. What these families are going through is gut-wrenching, it's heart-wrenching, and it's unimaginable, unthinkable for any of us. As the war nears two months, the U.S. pressing Israel to avoid more mass displacements and the killing of civilians. Vice President Kamala Harris, during a visit to the region, said the U.S. would not allow the forced relocation of Palestinians out of Gaza or the West Bank or the redrawing of Gaza's borders. We have been very clear about where we stand on this, which is innocent civilian lives should not be intentionally targeted and that Israel must do more to protect innocent life in Gaza and innocent civilians in Gaza. The U.S. hoping to keep the war from expanding. The U.S. military says three commercial ships in the Red Sea were struck by ballistic missiles fired from Houthi-controlled Yemen. And a U.S. warship shot down three drones in self-defense.
Back in the White House press briefing room, the press secretary adding this. We have seen the increase of anti-Semitism um, and, uh, you know, we understand the fear that people in the Jewish community must be feeling right now. Pope Francis has called the end of the truce painful. He says it means more death, destruction and misery. And regarding the hostages, the Pope said, quote, let's think of them, of their families who had seen a light, a hope of embracing again their loved ones. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. At least four people are dead after a bomb ripped through a Sunday mass at a university in the Philippines. <laughs> Officials say around 50 people were taken to the hospital. Several are fighting for their lives. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the attack in southern Philippines. Military officials say the attack could have been retaliation for airstrikes that killed 11 suspected Islamic militants. And joining us now is Claire Lopez, founder and president of Lopez Liberty LLC. Claire, good to have you back on. As mentioned, the terror group ISIS has taken responsibility for this horrific attack. What more can you tell us about the Islamic State and its presence in the Philippines, a predominantly Catholic country? Well, I would note that um, across the world, it seems since the uh, Shabbat massacre of October the 7th that the forces of uh, Islamic Jihad seemed to be emboldened. There were knife attacks in Ireland, knifing attacks in New York City, and this horrific bombing at the mass yesterday uh, in the Philippines. Um, and so I think that uh, the, the forces of Islamic Jihad um, somehow find the example of the Hamas massacre, the Hamas attack against Israel, to be somehow inspiring for them. Islamic State, of course, now found in places all over the world. Uh, it's no longer just Islamic State in Iraq and al-Sham, or ISIS, as it used to be, but Islamic State worldwide. Claire, uh, Bishop de la Pena of Morawi, where that bombing took place, said the attack in part, quote, uh, of it. He said, they hit us in the heart. That is during the Eucharist, the highest moment of our faith. Claire, talk to us about the motivation behind this attack and, and the psychological impact of carrying it out during Mass, our, our most sacred time of worship as Catholics. You know, it's, it's really hard for those of us, uh, you know, looking at this, uh, who, who are so far... Uh, removed from any of this kind of uh, Islamic jihadist ideology, hard for us to understand how fellow human beings could could behave like this and carry out attacks like this. Uh, the same thing with, with the October 7 Shabbat massacre. How could human beings possibly do this? It's hard for us to understand, but if we're going to confront and we're going to defeat the forces of Islamic jihad, we have to get inside of their heads and realize the absolute depravity of the evil uh, inside of, of these jihadis that attacked this mass at the Eucharist, as you said just yesterday. Yeah, it, it is really unconscionable. Uh Claire, I want to pivot now to the Middle East and the drone and missile attacks by the Houthi rebels on commercial ships and the USS Kearney, uh, that warship in the Red Sea. What more can you tell us about that? And what do you think all this signals? Well, once again, um, I, I think that uh, the, the forces of Islamic Jihad and in the Middle East were specifically talking about those proxy Islamic Jihad forces like Hamas, like Palestinian Islamic Jihad also in Gaza, like Hezbollah, 
like the Hashdashabi uh, Shiite militias in Iraq uh, and others attacking in those areas, Americans and Americans uh, on bases in, in those places, I think they all have found uh, a kind of uh, emboldening, uh, directed by, encouraged by uh, the Iranian regime, which arms funds, trains all of them. Uh, and that is what we're seeing with these Houthis. Um, Ansar al-Sharia is their actual name of this group operating out of Yemen. And until the United States, and Israel probably too, takes action, takes action to seriously strike back at the head of the Hydra, at the Iranian regime, the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, these proxies are going to continue to feel emboldened. All right, Claire, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much for your insights. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Outside Democrats walked out of ongoing talks with Republicans this past weekend. The discussions were over policy changes to border security. That move endangers congressional efforts to pass an aid package for Ukraine and Israel. With only two weeks before the Christmas break, the parties are drawing their lines in the sand. Let's check in with Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales for the very latest. Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. You know, both the White House and Ukrainian officials warned Congress that aid to help fund the war against Russia is running out as soon as by the end of the year. Both but deep divisions continue to grow up here on Capitol Hill, and Republicans are digging in, insisting that any more money to foreign aid has to include policy changes to deal with the crisis at the southern border. We are going to secure the border. Nothing's going to get passed with regard to Ukraine unless this border is going to be secure. If the word Ukraine is uttered on the floor of the House of Representatives before we have secured the border, passed H.R. 2 out of the Senate, with the president signing it, with metrics attached, that is an utter fail by Republicans. Democrats aren't backing down. This is not about addressing the border. This is about destroying the immigration system, something they have not been able to do through regular order, so they want to try and trade destruction of the asylum system for aid for Ukraine. That's just outrageous. Last month, the House passed a $14 billion Israel aid bill paid for by taking money away from the IRS. It doesn't include any funds for Ukraine. It remains stalled in the Senate. But the deep divisions aren't just with funding the wars or the border. Some Democrats are also demanding that any Israeli aid package must also include humanitarian efforts for Palestinians. Israel cannot disregard international law. They cannot kill women and children indiscriminately. And if we're going to give them money, and they need money to defend themselves, but if we're going to give them money, then they have got to obey international law. Congress must also pass the defense bill, and there are problems there, too. Senator Josh Hawley says it must include compensating victims of radiation testing by the military. I will not sign off on funding for military contractors to get billions of dollars in taxpayer money while the people of my state and other states who have been poisoned by the federal government get nothing. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that he'll bring up an aid package for Ukraine and Israel this week, but it will not have any border security. Again, that's a non-starter for Republicans, so a lot of negotiating must take place this week. I'll stay on top of it. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including fighting for the faithful. How a Catholic parish is pushing back against a revised state law in Michigan. And Pope Francis weighs in on his health, the start of Advent, and climate change.
A Catholic parish in Michigan is fighting to protect its mission from a recently revised state law. St. Joseph Parish requires all staff to uphold church teaching, including on gender, marriage, and sexuality. Last year, lawmakers in the state house expanded the civil rights law to prohibit discrimination of sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, thus far, Michigan has refused to make any accommodations for religious groups. We go now to Will Hahn, senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is representing St. Joseph's Parish. Well, good to be with you. Uh, first off, talk good to you. us about St. Joseph's Parish in St. John's, Michigan. What role does it play in the community? And also, how how is this recent change to state laws having an impact on the parish and also elementary school? Yeah, thank you for that. Since 1857, St. Joseph uh, Catholic Church has served the local Michigan community in St. John's. It's the area's only Catholic parish. It opened a school in 1924, and it provides children with an education that is rooted in the teachings and traditions of the church. And it allows all people, regardless of their faith, to attend mass and regularly opens its school and parish facilities for public use. And like religious institutions in Michigan and nationwide, it asks that those that come to its uh, campus, whether that be the parish or the school, to uphold the Catholic environment, to uphold, to uphold the religious institution's environment. That is now a problem in Michigan. Michigan expanded its understanding of anti-discrimination now to include sexual orientation and gender identity that would prohibit St. Joseph from upholding its Catholic identity on those issues whenever it does anything on its campus, whenever it employs someone, whenever it has facilities that are open to all, whenever it has its school be open to everyone. There's no dispute about this. The only dispute is whether the First Amendment has something to say, and it absolutely does. This is unconstitutional. Well, how have uh, state officials and the governor, uh, Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer, responded to your request for an accommodation on religious grounds? Well, they uh, they be they responded by simply not allowing any accommodations to this change in Michigan law whatsoever. The Michigan Civil Rights Commission passed a resolution when this law was saying. Uh, being debated, saying that this change should be enacted without any amendments that would reduce scope or impact of the law. And the reason is clear, General Nessel told us, because she says that people who deny, uh, people who apply their religious teachings in these areas of employment, of education, of having open facilities, they're not religious heroes, they're bigots. And indeed, this, this change to Michigan law is the result of a five-year effort in Michigan going after those who have sincere religious beliefs about marriage and sexuality. This is the culmination of that. And now the only question is, can St. Joseph's still run a Catholic parish? The First Amendment guarantees that the answer is yes. What about church leaders in Michigan? Have they made any statements about this? Absolutely. This has been already the function, already been produced multiple lawsuits, uh, already had demonstrated out uh, kind of concern and disappointment about how this is going to affect ordinary religious ministries. I mean, the logic of what the district judge said, we're now on appeal, was that, well, if St. Joseph wants to uphold Catholic identity when it hires employees, for example, it can go to the Michigan Civil Rights Commission of Bureaucracy and ask permission at five-year increments for every single employee, whether or not you can uphold Catholic identity as to that employee. Constitutional rights don't come with permission slips, and everyone should see the problem with that. Well, uh, before I let you go, can you give us an update of where things stand right now? I understand a lower court actually dismissed her case earlier this year. So what, what comes next? 
We've now appealed the case to the middle court in the federal system, the Court of Appeals, and we'll be hearing from Michigan at the end of this month, and we expect oral argument in the early part of next year. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and we will continue to follow this case. Thank you. Thank you very much. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, On the Men, the Holy Father is keeping up his schedule as he recovers from illness. EWTN Vatican correspondent Andreas Tonhauser has more, plus a new perspective, how the faithful can tour the Holy Land this Christmas without ever leaving their home. Pope Francis continues to recover from lung inflammation and the flu yesterday. For a Sunday address to pilgrims, he again asked for help in reading his message. It included advice for Advent and some words for participants of the COP28 summit in Dubai. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser has more. With that, Pope Francis presided over the Angelus from his residence at Casa Santa Marta. Announcing this decision Saturday evening, the Pope's spokesperson explained his condition was stable, but that it was appropriate to avoid cold weather. The Pope's aide, Monsignor Paolo Braida, delivered the Holy Father's address. In his Sunday reflection, the Pope invited the faithful to follow a special program for Advent, to see Jesus' arrival in every brother and sister in need, and to share with them our time, attention, and concrete help. At the end of the Angelus prayer, the Holy Father mentioned the climate summit in Dubai, to which he ended up not going because of health concerns. Pope Francis urged a global ecological conversion and renewed his call for climate change through concrete policy changes. Let us come out of the straits of particularism and nationalism and embrace a common vision, the Pope stressed, committing all of us now without delay to a necessary ecological conversion of the whole world. I am going to read an extract of the address that Pope Francis was to deliver here. The Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, led the Holy See delegation to the summit. He delivered the Pope's address on Saturday morning. The Holy Father spoke about the waste of energy through the many ongoing wars, conflicts that will not solve but increase problems. He also clarified that it is not the poor who are responsible for ever-growing emissions. To Pope Francis, especially indigenous people are the real victims. Pope Francis also took the opportunity to defend life, saying that birth rate should not be considered a problem, but much more seen as a resource. I'm not against life, but for life, the Holy Father affirmed. In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser and Matteo Chaffee, EWTN News Nightly. On finally tonight, amid the Israel-Hamas war, officials are preventing pilgrims from visiting a biblical town during the Advent and Christmas season. So the town is responding. The Magdala Torah Center is offering a virtual look at some of the important sites in the Holy Land. The Star of Wonder Advent Pilgrimage of Peace features a new video every Sunday of the Advent season. Highlighted areas include the hometown of Mary Magdalene, the site of the visitation, and Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ. Information is available at Magdala. Org. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.